offer the opportunity to practice before I have to get up in front of a group next week to do the same thing. But I want to introduce our speaker tonight, and she's a very close personal friend, as well as um, our Al-Anon delegate that goes to World Service. And she and I are so close that when she went to New York, she sent me a card saying, I didn't get your card. <laughs> Please help me in welcoming Barbara tonight. Hi, everybody. My name is Barbara Miller. I'm a member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon. My home group is the TGIF Al-Anon family group in Baton Rouge. Um, I, too, am a pinch hitter because I was called last Sunday to see if I could fill in tonight for the lady that was supposed to be here, and I'm happy to be here. They knew I was be here anyway. Um, I am the World Service Delegate to the conference in New York. And uh, I just got back about three weeks ago, and I'm still trying to catch up. Service is a big part of my life, um, has been almost since I came in. I've always been interested in doing things and um, controlling things and uh, managing things. So I had to look at my Al-Anon service work when I got here to see if my motives were right. And I found out that they were. To me, you're an Al-Anon only if you attend meetings regularly, you work the principles of this program to the best of your ability, and you try to practice the steps and the traditions in your life. Uh, just because you're married to an alcoholic doesn't make you an Al-Anon any more than being married to an Al-Anon makes you an al an a member of AA. That's my personal opinion. I... Um, Never dreamed I would be where I am today. I grew up in Arkansas. I'm a Jap. Does anyone know what that is? I'm a Jewish American princess. <laughs> and I was supposed to marry a man who would protect me and take care of me all my days, and I would raise his children and take care of his house and never have to work. And I did that from in my first marriage. Uh, I'm not from an alcoholic home, but I have a lot of the tendencies that children who are raised in alcoholic homes have because my mother was physically ill. So I picked up those things, you know, the caretaking and the being in charge and the being cool under pressure and uh, wanting to please and especially to take care of people. My first husband didn't need me to take care of him. He was an adult child of an alcoholic, although I didn't know what that was at the time, and it certainly made no difference to him. He just worked. Thank you. <laughs> he wanted to be the powerful provider, and he was, so I never had to work. So I was one of those women that did good deeds, that uh, you know joined this club and became president and joined that club and became president and that committee and was chairing it in no time. That's why I had to look at my motives for Al-Anon service work. I um, got bored. Um, my illness is boredom. And when I started taking a fourth step, the first time I realized that I had been bored all my life. And uh, boredom landed me married to an alcoholic. Because I left my first husband, I broke up my marriage, and I left my children. And I found an alcoholic who needed me. 
And God knows no one needs you more than a practicing alcoholic. I was a perfect patsy for alcoholism to come into my life. He drank a year and a half after we married. And I came to my first meeting just trying to find out how to make him drink right. You know, I mean, everyone I had ever known except for one couple drank fine. You know, they'd get happy, and then when they got too much, they'd go home. And uh, he didn't get happy. He'd get mean and nasty and irritable. And I didn't like that because it cut into my fun. The drinking never bothered me. It was the lying that bothered me. I found out long after we were together that uh, he had lied to me about everything but his name. (laughs) He'd lied about his age. He'd lied about his children's ages. He had lied about what he did for a living. I mean, everything. And I had bought it, you know. Uh, he showed me his driver's license, and when it said a different year than he told me, he when you know he said, "Well, they made a mistake, and I can't get them to straighten it out." And I believe that, you know, there was nothing wrong with me. Um, when he got his first DWI, I was with him, and I was also drinking, and we were on the road to Fayetteville, Arkansas, which is just like this, and uh, we were pulled over, and I was tested too. But I passed. I was allowed to drive the car to the police station and wait for him to get out. And I paid that DWI. And we weren't married at the time. And I thought it was kind of funny. You know, DWI wasn't the, you didn't hear it every day like you do today. I don't know why I'm not an alcoholic. Lord knows I should have had lots of DWIs. I have driven long after I shouldn't have after I'd been drinking. But I just never crossed that line. It never did for me what it did for him or for the many alcoholics I've heard talk. I don't like losing control. And when I find that feeling coming over me, I just stopped. (laughs) Um, Money was always a problem in our marriage because he couldn't earn a living. I have trouble recognizing an alcoholic that can drink and still support a family and, you know, have a little left over for essentials like rent and groceries. Um, up till that point, I had never come across anything that I couldn't handle. When I was a kid growing up, I was extremely spoiled. I uh, got my way in everything. If I didn't, I talked myself into believing that I really wanted what ended up being the solution anyway. I could not be wrong. I could not accept that I had made a mistake. So it was very difficult for me to call this couple. We had a lot of geographical cures during his drinking. And when I had left my first husband, I moved from the home where I had lived all my life. And through one of our geographical cures, we ended up back there. And by then, the drinking was pretty bad. And I wouldn't introduce him to anyone that I had known in my other life. And I talk today about my other life because it really was. You know, I'm not the person I was then. Um, But I wouldn't introduce him to anybody because I didn't want him to embarrass me. I didn't want them to know that I had made a mistake. 
And that's what I was feeling by then, that I had really screwed up royally because I couldn't make this man not drink the way he did and not work. See, I didn't realize for a long time that when he'd leave at 8 o'clock in the morning that he wasn't going to work. He was going to wait for the Sonic drive-in to open so he could get the malt cup of 7-Up, pour half of it out and put it full of vodka and then drive around all day drinking and thinking, I guess. <laughs> I don't know what he was doing, but he wasn't earning a living. Um, we ended up moving back to my hometown right up the street from my elderly parents, and my mother had had a stroke two or three years before that and was very, very ill, and um, she adored him. She adored the alcoholic. She did not like my first husband, but she adored the alcoholic. And she never knew the things that he did. I never did tell her. And she loved him till the day she died. When um, he did sober up, in about six weeks he had a job offer in Baton Rouge. And we came down here not knowing a soul, with all our worldly possessions in the back of a U-Haul. And I followed it from Fort Smith, Arkansas to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, one Friday in the rain, all the way. And I have said many times, if I ever see the words at U-Haul, an adventure in moving, one more time, <laughs> I didn't think I would ever get there. Um, we got here and we got in the program, both feet, both of us, and uh, the first three years I was in the program, I waited for him to get sober and happy. He was not dry. He was not drinking, but I didn't think he was sober, you know. Because in all my wisdom, I had seen sober ones, and they didn't act like that. And I waited for him to get happy, so you know, to get okay with not drinking, so that we could be happy. And I had a sponsor when I moved down here. She'd been in, I don't know, at that point, probably 10 or 12 years. And the first year we were there, I, I said, you know, she, he's just not happy and he's not doing well and it's just awful. And she said, well, you know, the first year is really hard. Um, they've got to get used to the idea of not drinking and get that booze out of their system good and, you know, get their feet back on the ground. And I thought... Okay, I'll wait a year. And uh, the second year rolled around, and I went back to her, and I said, You know, and the same song, second verse. And she said, Well, you know, the second, it takes some of them longer than others. And um, it's harder sometimes for someone who's been that bad to get okay in a couple of years. And sometimes it takes them longer. And I said, Well, okay, I'll try again. And the third year, same song third verse and she just she gave me the same story and I said you know this is enough I'm gonna they keep telling me to do something for me and I didn't know what me was I had still obsessed over what he was doing where he was going uh, when he'd be home now he wasn't drinking folks <laughs> he was working and uh, he wasn't happy. You know, he wasn't what I thought happy should be. So I decided, you know, it says in our opening, 
that we can be happy whether the alcoholic is drinking or not. And I took that to mean we can be happy whether the alcoholic is happy or not. And I decided that I would do what I could to find some happiness with or without him. So I started really going to Al-Anon. I started really working the program. I started really talking to my sponsor, um, doing all the right things. And I became a uh, GR. Now, I wasn't a very good GR because I never did make it to assembly until the last one of that term, which happened to be an election assembly. And at that point, we were meeting in Alexandria in the Sheraton Hotel, and Al-Anon was in a room about the size of this first section, <laughs> and it was jammed. Um, and because I was there and there was maybe two other people there, I was elected a district representative, and I had no idea what that was because I hadn't done what a group representative did. But I took it um, on the condition that if I did, I'd have to ask him if it'd be okay if I came up to Alexandria three or four times a year. And at that point, I don't think he cared, so I did, and I, I got involved in it. I attribute a lot of my growth in service work to a lady from Texas named Arbutus O'Neill because I met her at a convention in Monroe a few months after I'd been elected, and I was still very full of myself. And I said, well, I'm the DR for, you know, District 9 in Baton Rouge. And she said, oh, really? Well, what does your group do, and how do you, when do you have meetings, and what about your steering committee? And I didn't know what she's talking about. And she, you know, I told her that, and she said, honey, you're dangerous. You know how you get a little knowledge, and, you know, you know it all? And <laughs> so I went back, and I read my manuals, and it's, it's, there's a wealth of information in there I never knew existed. And I've been in service ever since. Um, and it's helped me a lot in my growth. I, um, I've always heard that, you know, our triangle has three sides. And if you're only doing two of them, like recovery and unity, you're, you're cheating yourself. And if you hit a plateau and you're not seeming to go anywhere, maybe you need to try service. And I, I don't want to hear that. You know, I, I think the only meeting I've ever walked out in Al-Anon, this man had the audacity to do a meeting on the traditions. And I was so angry because I needed help, damn it. I didn't need to hear that stuff. Uh, today it's different. <laughs> I, um, I have been divorced now for about... Uh, I don't, even, I don't even know. I guess that's good, huh? Four or five years, six years, whatever, you know. It used to be important and it's not anymore. Um, and I had people ask me if I would go back to Arkansas. And I said, well, why? And they said, well, you don't have any family here because I don't. I mean, I don't have anybody down here. I said, but this is my family. This is my home now. Um, no, I won't go back to Arkansas. I did want to go somewhere where it didn't rain so much and where the summers were cooler, but <laughs> I never made the move. When, um, you know, it's, it's really hard to believe that I was like I used to be. Um, money was very important to me, and because we had it, I felt superior to a lot of the people that I was friends with. 
And I guess God needed to take that money away from me in order to get me where I need to be. Now, I have no money today more than I need, but you see, He gives me everything I need. I have a lot of wants, but I don't have any needs that aren't met. The difference today is that I don't feel inferior And I believe, truly, if I ever came into a windfall and won the lottery or a sweepstakes, that I wouldn't have to feel superior again. Because, you see, the problems that I brought into that alcoholic marriage I'd had all my life. I needed to feel superior. I needed the money to help me be okay. Um, I liked pretty clothes, and I liked big cars back when there were big cars. And I liked... uh, you know, country clubs, and, and uh, I played golf, and I did lunch, and I shopped, and uh, I was on a first-name basis with the president of most of the stores. I, um, that's what I did. That's why I got bored. And I got in trouble getting bored. So, you know, I don't think I'd get bored again if I had the opportunity. Today, I I work in a full-time job. I'm a legal secretary. And if there are any attorneys in the audience, please forgive me, but they're beasts. (laughs) They're very strange people. So I I work in a very demanding job. And um, I I do a lot of Al-Anon stuff. And I don't have to do the things that used to be fun for me. You know, fun for me used to be going out to a nice restaurant for dinner, having a couple of drinks, then going to a a club to dance, or to a movie, or to someone's party, and um, staying up real late, sleeping real late in the morning, and, you know, doing it all over the next night, and... uh, I heard someone say, you know, that that your wants change when you come in this program. Well, I know my idea of fun has changed because I'm real nervous on the roads at night late (laughs) because I know there's a lot of people out there feeling like I used to (laughs) and doing what I used to do, probably. Um, I've heard so many things in this program that have helped me. And I I like to share some of the things with a newcomer that I heard when I first came in the program. One of them was that it wasn't my fault. And you see, he told me so, and I believed him, because that's what a good wife did. She believed him. And see, I believed all of his lies. So I was certainly going to believe the fact that it was my fault, because somehow I was at fault. If I was a good wife and a perfect homemaker and you know the house was clean and the shirts were ironed he wouldn't drink so much so I did what all of us do you know I tried to do it all perfectly and of course when I had had help full time uh, all the time when I wasn't working with two children I did it perfectly because no one would ever know if I didn't so it was real hard for one person to do it all and I couldn't admit that I'd made a mistake I had mentioned earlier that there was a friend, a couple that we had partied with that we had ostracized actually is what we had done to them because they would get so drunk. They would really just go over the line. You know, they just weren't fun to be around. And our set kind of ostracized them. And I remembered when we moved back to Fort Smith 
that I had heard that these people had sobered up in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. When we were living in Little Rock, I had seen an Al-Anon public service announcement. You may have seen it. It's the one where the light is behind her at the window and it's night outside and it's raining and the water's coming down the window and she looks like who'd have thought it. And it says, you may know what his drinking, you can see what his drinking is doing to him, but can you see what it's doing to you? Well, it didn't send me to Al-Anon immediately, but I must have filed it away. And when we got to Fort Smith, I called this couple. We were fixing to be evicted from this very nice duplex we had moved into. I just didn't know what else to do. I simply had no other solutions. And I called Brooksine and I said, could you come talk to him? Because I figured they'd just talk to him and straighten him out, right? And he'd be okay and we'd be happy. And uh, she said, okay, but don't let him drink so much. <laughs> and I thought that's kind of funny for now, you know, for a member of Alcoholics Anonymous to tell me not to let him drink too much. But they did come over, and they were, they were real alcoholics, folks. You know, they had big-time stories. And they shared them with us. And uh, I don't know what he was thinking, but I was thinking, but he hadn't done that. And finally I voiced this, and uh, they said yet. So it kind of got my attention a little bit. She took me to my first Al-Anon meeting, and that was July the 22nd of 1976. Now, I don't think she's ever been in an Al-Anon meeting before that, and I don't think she's been back since, but she took me to my first one, and I'll always be grateful for that. I... um, I had to wait four weeks to buy my one day at a time. I say it was a four dollars and a quarter then, and I saved four dollars over a four-week time before I could buy it. I um, I did crazy things like try to force him to go to AA. You know, I found out that. Uh, well, I asked him when I went in. I needed the magic formula to make him stop drinking, and they said we don't do that. And I didn't believe them. I thought if I showed them I was serious, you know, if I kept coming back, that they'd realize I meant it. And then they'd tell me how to make him stop drinking. You know, almost 15 years later, they've never told me how to make him stop drinking, or anybody for that matter. They never promised they'd save my marriage. They never promised me that I would be thin and rich. They did promise me that I would be okay. And today I can say that I am okay. I am more okay than I have ever been. One of the other things they told me at my first meeting was that we only take life a day at a time. And I liked that. That was a piece of time I could handle. I was so busy with what he had done yesterday and last week and last month and what he was going to do tomorrow and next week and next year. I didn't have it today. I didn't know what it was. I didn't think it existed So I liked being able to have just today. Now I have to be honest and tell you there were a lot of just 15 minutes, Lord, you know, just 15 minutes. Let me not kill myself or let me not kill him for 15 minutes. I wish I could tell you that since 1976 I haven't wanted to commit murder, but I have. I... um, At first, I had trouble with the second step, 
with that sanity word in there. You know, there wasn't anything wrong with me. It was him that had the problem. And if you would just straighten him up, everything would be okay. But then I started thinking. I had, um, I had planned a funeral for a man that was still alive. I had planned what he would wear and who I would invite. And there won't be anybody that liked him. <laughs> Somewhere along the line, I got the idea that that's not totally sane behavior. <laughs> I really had it planned very extravagantly. I didn't want him to hurt anybody else. I just wanted him to drive into a telephone pole with his big cup of 7-Up and vodka and his sonic cup <laughs> and that'd be it and I'd be okay because I would be out of my misery I couldn't understand why being a good wife a loving wife wasn't enough but you see I'd never met anything that I couldn't control until I met alcohol or the effects of alcoholism as a disease on a person I had always been able to manipulate and control anyone around me, and that included parents, teachers, my sister, friends, everybody. So I didn't, I didn't understand why I couldn't make him do what I wanted him to do, and that was just drink normally. Um, he had horses, and I like cowboys. I have to say that. I still look at a man's feet before I look at anything else. See if he's wearing boots. <laughs> I like cowboys. Um, and we, he rode cutting horses. Do you even know what cutting horses are? It's an extremely expensive hobby. And you don't ever make a living at it that I know of, or not back then. And we would leave work or I'd leave work on Friday afternoon and we'd get in the car and we'd pull the horse to a cutting and you know he'd drink all weekend and uh, I'd get to drive the truck home late Sunday night because he's passed out and couldn't drive pulling the horse I learned to do that you know I can do anything I need to um, I remember one, you know but we had fun some of it was fun Sometimes you have fun and all that. And I remember one time that we had fun. We were at a cutting in Mississippi. We'd driven all day Friday to get there or Saturday or something. I don't know. It was, it's like a blur now. Because he was supposed to cut at 8 o'clock that night, and we got there at 2, so we went to the bar. And he'd been drinking all the way up in the truck. and Ended up taking the microphone away from the entertainer and singing a few songs that he'd written that actually John Denver had written. I mean, he was sometimes he's fun, you know. Sometimes we had a good time. And then he didn't ride until 8 o'clock the next morning. And I slept on a grandstand bleacher in some arena in Mississippi somewhere. I don't even remember where. And he drank. He was drinking all that time. I don't know how he could sit in the saddle. And he said after he got sober, he probably couldn't sit in one sober because <laughs> he'd never tried it. Some things were fun. There were good times. But, you know, um, I've learned 
that sometimes there's a bigger illness than alcoholism. You know, like I've been told that lying is a symptom of the disease of alcoholism. I now believe that alcoholism is a bigger is a symptom of a larger illness. And he's been diagnosed with a larger illness long after we were apart. And I was very grateful that I was not with him to go through what his new wife had to go through. That's a story. Um, We separated, and a year and a half later we divorced. And in that year and a half we were working on it, you know. And it was like he would never make up his mind, so I put my life on limbo. Um... And when he fi- I finally decided to get a divorce. And before he was served with papers, I heard he was going to get married. And I thought, you know, that's wonderful. How's he going to do that? And he did. He got married the day after we divorced. And I had such hatred and such anger because I didn't deserve that. I, I stepped out of my program and I reverted to my other life. And this Barbara didn't deserve that. You know, I know today that this barber today didn't deserve it either. But I'm very grateful that I, I, I did it like I did, and it happened like it did. You know, I've heard a lot of AAs say that they have to hit bottom. And one of the things Brad kept telling, this couple in Fort Smith kept telling him was, have you had enough? Have you had enough to drink? Because he felt that until you've had enough, you're not going to quit. And I think I finally had enough. My God works in my life in a strange way. He, um, he'll let me go along on self-will, run riot, like it says in the big book, just as long as I can. And then he'll grab me up by those reins and just jerk the hell out of my mouth. Um, I had to lose everything in the world that I had any value in, anything that I loved. Now, I didn't live under a bridge, and I didn't hit Skid Row. But I think I know the utter devastation that an alcoholic in that situation must feel because I lost, ultimately, the marriage that was so difficult for me to admit I'd made a mistake and finally give up. I ultimately lost the house that I felt was a gift from God when we bought it because we had no credit, and I don't know how we got it, but we did. About the same time, during the separation, my father died, whom I had worshipped. And not long after that, my kids said that they didn't have a whole lot of use for me, and they'd just seen I'd stay out of their lives. I got fired from a job that I'd had for six years. So I'd lost it all, folks. I had nothing. Daddy had always been there to pick Barbara up when she'd fallen on her butt, you know, or if her husband had been there, or I had kids that I felt I could call and cry on their shoulder, you know. I always had a good job once I started working. I mean, I bluffed my way into being a legal secretary. Um, and had, had had it for six years. And then my dog had been part of my first divorce settlement and then was part of my second divorce settlement. So when he died, I mean, that was just, whoa, you know. That's what it took for me. 
You're talking about a multitude of denial. You're talking about mega denial. I had been in Al-Anon for 10 years when this happened. And I still was saying there was not that much wrong with me. Now, I changed it from nothing to not much. God allowed me to see what my problem was. He allowed me to see just how sick I really was. And when I admitted that, and we use the word surrender in this program a lot, and I hated it. God, I didn't want to surrender to anything. You know, I'm like, there's a word, there's a page in our One Day at a Time book that says, I think it was Dr. Tebow said that, you know, surrender is what you really have to do, but some of us just accept it for a little while because in the back of our heads someday there's, we're going to be able to handle it. Well, that's what I was doing. I realize that now. I had never surrendered to the higher power of my understanding, who was a pretty good guy, by the way. You know, I mean, he'd never really done bad by me. I had gotten myself in a whole pot of trouble, but he hadn't done it. I'd done that. I blamed him for it. And I always prayed, if you'll do this for me, I'll do that for you. Um, but he allowed me to see exactly what I needed to do to get my life back in order. And then when I finally accepted that I was powerless totally over anything, um, he started bringing me gifts. He gave me, the man that fired me turned it in as a layoff so I could collect unemployment for a couple of months. And I had a little extra income, so I, I didn't change my living habits, honey. I just went right on. And I needed those two months off to heal. I needed that. Um, when I got ready, to, when I got bored again and wanted to go back to work, he found me a perfect job in the legal profession, which, of all things, had no stress, was not over, you know, under pressure. I mean, you just don't find those kinds of jobs. But my higher power found me one. And a year and a half later, I was bored again, so I moved where I am now. This just, you know, driving me crazy. He, um, I bought a house three, well, almost four years ago now. Now, I've never done any of that sort of stuff, folks. you got to understand, I was a Jap. I never was. I never knew how to get my own driver's license. His secretary would do it. I never had to buy insurance. God, deal with that stuff? Uh-uh. My tough thing was deciding what to have dinner that night. You know, whether to eat out or go home or you know what. Buy insurance. Talk. The first thing I did was buy a car. Now, that was fun. <laughs> I'd never bought a car by myself either because the car I bought between husbands, he helped me pick out. So it would have a big enough motor to pull a horse trailer. Now, it was the kind of car, it was a convertible. I just love convertibles. And I'd always wanted one. And Daddy wouldn't let me have one because they were dangerous. And my first husband wouldn't let me have one because he'd had one. And once you have one, you don't ever want another one. Well, that's not true because I bought a second one. After I got rid of husband number two, I bought convertible number two. And I had it until January this year, and I love it. I just loved it. Her name was Flash. 
and she was red. <laughs> and the Alateens, I sponsored an Alateen group, and the Alateens adored it. They liked Flash too. And that was a trip to buy that car. I took a male friend with me because I didn't think I could do it. You know, I didn't think I could deal with these people because I'd heard they were real sneaky. <laughs> so, I, And I call my son like every other day. Well, what should I do now, you know? Well, I went in in January and I bought me another car. And I didn't take anybody with me. And I told them what I wanted. And I wanted to look at what was available. But I'm not going to give you my name because I don't want any phone calls. I don't have time for that. And when I get ready, I'll come back. And I did. And they'd look at me like I was so strange. You know, like, how dare she do that? And I made a pretty good deal, tell you the truth. You know, they gave me a lot of money for Flash. Gave me Blue Book Retail. I thought that was real good. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is, I'm a grown-up today. Whether I want to be or not. And you see, sometimes I'm not. And sometimes I really don't want to be. I still would like to have someone to help occasionally, to help me. I don't want to help anybody. <laughs> I hope I've gotten over that. The only time I have missed having a man in my life, in the whatever it's been, was a winter a year ago, Christmas a year ago, when the pipes froze. <laughs> and I had the flu, and the pipes froze, and I was out of firewood. And I said, a man could handle this. And then I got hold of myself, jerked myself up real quick, and I said, now, Barbara, your man's coming with your firewood. There's not a plumber to be had in the city of Baton Rouge right now. And your flu will get better, and you will live through it. And I settled down on the couch, and I did. All of those things happened. <laughs> that would have been a mammoth horrible tragedy 15 years ago. I would have milked it for all I was worth. Wasn't even going to milk it too. You know, I told him what I needed. I had heat. I had a neighbor across the street in the program that let me go get water out of her faucet. I had water. I could heat it up and take a bath. No big deal. It was not the most fun Christmas I ever spent, but it, I, I spent it. The higher power in my life today takes real good care of me. And I have, I have today, I think, what is called a real conscious contact. I talk to him every morning when I get up. And I invite him into my life. And sometimes during the middle of the day when one of those attorneys gets after me, I have to remember, wait a minute, you invited God into your life today, don't muddle it up, you know. And day by day a day at a time for 14 years and something my day my life has gotten better I've changed completely the girl that I was 15 years ago is not there anymore she really isn't there anymore my likes aren't the same my needs certainly aren't the same my wants aren't the same but what I've got today is so much better you know, I've got, I've got a family in Louisiana in almost any city in this state. I have, you know, I'm not too shy. 
I am sort of, when I first walk into a group where I don't know anybody, but I, you know, if I've seen you once or twice, you're pretty much a friend of mine. And I shocked the hell out of Tanya one time because she'd been at assembly announcing, come to the, the Natchez Convention and have a lot of fun and we have good speakers and da-da-da. And I walked up to her and I said, can I stay with you? And she just kind of went. She told me later, she asked a friend, she told a friend, she said, well, I don't know her very well, but she asked and she smoked, so I guess she's okay. <laughs> In um, 85, when I was going to Montreal to the international convention up there, I called a lady in Shreveport because I was going with a tour group a group of AAs from Shreveport and I got in on their tour but I had to drive from Baton Rouge and spend the night and I called her and I said can I come spend the night with you you know that's what friends are that's what family does that's what I've been told that family does and that friends do and it gives me a real secure feeling that if I have a real big problem that I can't handle me and God together I've got friends that will come help me through it I uh, closed my report this afternoon, and I forgot something real important in it. And for those of you who are here, I apologize. But I completely forgot about telling you about the trip to Stepping Stones because I didn't have it written down at the bottom of the page tell them about Stepping Stones. I got to go this year, and if any of you don't know, that's the home of Lois and Bill Wilson. And it's now a foundation because Lois has died and it was turned into a foundation. And that was the most awe-inspiring trip. I mean, it just, to see the things that, you know, they never threw anything away. Anything that anybody ever gave them in the program is in that house. It's, it's wonderful. There's pictures. Uh, Bill's little study up on the hill. Oh, God. You know, I think if I could sit up there, I'd write something pretty good, too. It's magnificent. The weather was perfect and it was cool and it wasn't humid and it wasn't raining. It was marvelous. I could probably do that, you know. It's a magnificent place. I'd like to go back, you know, if you ever get the chance to do that. That was probably the highlight of conference. That's something that I never thought I'd be doing is representing this state at the World Service Conference of Al-Anon. You know, I like service work, and I've been a GR poorly and a DR best I could. I've worked in public information because I was a coordinator here, and lo and behold, I got on the public information committee at the conference, and I love it. I love it. Um, it's real important to me because, you see, I really think that's how I got here. I think that public service announcement I saw urged me to call Brad Brookseen. It clicked with me somewhere along the line. That's how I got here was public information. See, I didn't come through a treatment center. No, some counselor didn't tell me to come. I came because I was wanting to fix it. I didn't need to be told. I came. So it's real important to me, public information is. You know, Bill Wilson once said that uh, he fully expected Al-Anon to outgrow AA in leaps and bounds because an alcoholic touches so many other lives around him. 
And you know, we're not doing that. Al-Anon is smaller than Alcoholics Anonymous. And I believe the reason is is because we're not getting the word out there to the people that still need us. There are people in this city right now and all over the world suffering from the effects of alcoholism in a loved one. And we don't know who they are. So we've got to get the word out there to the media. Papers and records. Please, your tape will be starting soon. And I'm sounding like a commercial, but it's important to me. Um, I really feel that anything I do for Al-Anon is just an obligation I have because it saved, if not my life, it saved my sanity because I was sure messed up. I didn't know what to do next. And I want Al-Anon to be here 20 years from now when someone else needs it, just like it was when I got here. That's important to me. So what I do is because of that. The lanyap of it is, and see, that's a word I've learned since I came to Louisiana. They don't have that word in Arkansas. It's one of them French words. The lanyap is that I've gotten a family and I've gotten friends. And I'm so grateful for that. And I heard, y'all heard Blanche last time, and that's a hard act to follow. But, you know, I was told before I went up there to be my own delegate, not to be somebody else's delegate. And I was also told, and Blanche told me that someone had shared this with her when she went up there, was that um, there may be other people in Louisiana that know more about Al-Anon than I do, but I'm the only one up here. So I tried to remember that. You know, I try to take what you want, what you need, with me. And I hope I did that. I closed my report today with something like, if I contributed to one positive move at the World Service Conference, then I've done my job for Louisiana Al-Anon. Thank you.